0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and today we're talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and free will. This is part seven in a series called Once Saved, Always Saved. So if you are just tuning in or you haven't checked out any of the previous episodes, make sure you go check those out. There's a lot of content for you leading up to this. Uh, We'll be continuing where we left off. Last time we talked about evil, I'll do a, a recap, but We just finished talking about free will, evil, predestination of evil, predestination, you know, how God works in history. And today we're talking about the incarnation. And so why I chose to cover this topic, I haven't seen too many people talk about this in the overall context of the conversation of once saved, always saved, eternal security, election, predestination. I haven't seen too many people address this specific topic. Uh, And I think it's really interesting, first and foremost, because the incarnation is the template, right? God becoming a man and being among us to show us and you know how to live and what his plan was. In many ways, that is the revelation of our future, right? And so ultimately, there's so many interesting things with this topic that we can get into, um, but the incarnation was predestined. You know, God says in his word that Jesus was the lamb, slain before the foundation of the world. And so if the incarnation was predestined, if the cross was predestined, right? If everything about Christ's life was predestined, then that is the model for our lives as well. And so this is what we're going to explore today and and see just, just the wisdom of God's plan, man. It's just so fascinating. You know, cro- the the cross is the center of history. It is where everything, it's the singularity. You know, Christ split, Time in two between A.D. and B.C. So even now, they're trying. The atheists are trying to label time with C.E. You know, Common Era and before Common Era. But what's zero? You still have to use Jesus's life. You know, so ultimately, God coming and becoming a man is—it's the most important event in history. I mean, it's—it's it's there, right? He—he—he he, he became a human being like us, so that we could see him, we could experience him, be with him. I mean, that's. It's just mind-blowing. Even if you are a devout Christian, when you really think about this, it's, it's really over our heads. It's just so over our heads. It's such a mystery, and it's such a profound thing that happened. But in the last episode, we talked about this idea of a Hegelian dialectic through the lens of history and, and predestination. And one thing, first and foremost, the Hegelian dialectic that people understand as thesis, antithesis, synthesis, or in layman's terms, problem-reaction-solution. That's not necessarily attributed to Hegel. Hegel had some of that. He was influenced by other German philosophers. But anyway, that's not the point. The main point is when people hear Hegelian dialectic or problem-reaction-solution, especially if you're into alternative news and you're a little awake when it comes to those things, you uh, tend to associate that with conspiracy theories with you know the elite and them using it to advance their occult agenda and it's true that part is true however that doesn't mean that the idea of thesis antithesis you know uh, synthesis or problem reaction solution that that is evil in and of itself it's a way of revealing truth now you have to remember that those in power who worship the devil and who love the occult what are they trying to do they're trying to be god They know how God's created history. They know how God, they know the Bible. They've read the Bible. They know scripture. They know history. They see what God does. And so they try to copy God. That's been the devil from the very beginning. Okay. They can't be God, but they're trying to copy God and use God's, you know, methods. That's the whole occult in a nutshell. It's basically using the dark and the light, you know, the the opposing forces. God created duality. He created male and female. He created the sun and the moon. You know, he, he created light and darkness. He takes ownership for all of it. But these people who are into the occult and worship the devil and try to advance their nefarious agenda, they are trying to copycat God. And how do they do that? Well, they they do what they try to do. Let's put it this way, what God is doing. But God's using them in the end, which is interesting. But they try to do this problem, reaction, solution thing, right? So I want a, solu- or I want a, a solution. I want an ending. So I'm going to work backwards and create the problem so I can get the reaction, so I can get my solution. Now, in the hands of God, who is morally perfect and omniscient and beyond all understanding, that's fine because that's how God is advancing his agenda. There's the kingdom of heaven where only people who have been chosen and who love Christ will be in that kingdom. That's the solution. That's what the Father gave to the Son. He declared the end from the beginning. And what do we do? We work our way backwards. Problem is mankind's sin, right? If you create people, well, they have self-awareness. They have emotions. They have sexuality. They have all these things that are part of human nature that aren't necessarily bad, but they can lead to problems. So that's a problem. What's the solution? Well, if I judge everybody as God, you know, they're going to be destroyed because nobody can make the cut with my law. So the solution is the cross. And then that leads to the kingdom of heaven, right? So ultimately you look throughout history, that's that's the great picture, but there's little advances through that where God is constantly taking this is what we talked about last episode. It was a long episode. I encourage you to to go listen to it in chunks if you need to, but it really we really had to look at a lot of things because when you talk about predestination of evil, for most of us that's a knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, that God could never do that. Well, you gotta read your Bibles more. Evil has a purpose in this short wink of an existence that we have. It has a very distinct purpose. God is using it through various means in history to advance prophecies, to create different things. You know, David sleeping with Bathsheba led to Solomon who built the first temple. He says he had a problem, he had a reaction, he had a solution. It doesn't matter that that we're using this format. God uses everything for the good and he's predestined even the things that are negative to be used for the good. So the problem is when people who obviously not God, I <laughs> mean these people try to be God and they're using some system like this to advance a nefarious agenda. You know, they create a problem, they create the reaction and then they bring in their their evil solution. Does that make the system evil? No, the the system of revealing the truth is God's way of using duality and using the world that he's created to bring about the ultimate truth, the thing where everything is uniting, which is the kingdom of heaven. And that's, that's the future we're all being drawn to. But those in power try to use it for evil. The cross is where everything comes together. God and man, flesh and spirit, justice and mercy, sin and salvation, life and death, heaven and earth. Everything comes together. It's the singularity. So this, you know, God becoming a man and living as Jesus Christ is, it's a phenomenal area of study because it really gives us insight into our own free will or lack thereof, right? That's really what we're going to be exploring today. Why again, it, again, why is it important? Well, Romans 8.29 tells us that we're being conformed to the image of Christ, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, firstborn doesn't mean Christ was created. It's just it's a title. It's a preeminence thing. Another thing is that earlier in Romans, we we read about Adam being the first type of the one to come. Jesus was the last Adam, the second Adam. Right? Romans 5.14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam was a type from the very beginning. This is very important. We are created in God's image. That's what the Bible says. But you have to remember that image, the word image comes from Moses. Moses was writing, you know, in a time of idolatry and people were building statues and little statuettes and carrying them around. Those were images. So what does that actually mean that we were creating God's image? That means that we, from the very beginning, were meant to be temples. We, you know, the the Middle East believed that, and this was true in other pagan cultures too, but that whole area, when you created an image, a statue it wasn't just this inanimate object. They believed that the spirit of whatever deity, once you sacrifice to it and you, you know, do all these things, that the spirit would inhabit that statue and then it had like this supernatural power. And so that's the belief that's centered around images. Right? And now think about this. Moses is writing the Old Testament, and he's writing Genesis that we're being we're created in God's image with that understanding. So from the very beginning, we were meant to be vessels for the spirit of God to enter and, and to, to be used, right? You know, throughout the Bible, you have these metaphors of pots. Last time in the episodes before we talked about predestination, how you have so many Isaiah, Romans, different examples of, can the pot speak to the potter, you know, that kind of thing. But there's Constant examples of people being compared to pots, which are vessels. Vessels are empty without water. Who gives the living water? Jesus does. And so there's a lot going on there about us being, you know, we're vessels. Not that we're unconscious, but we don't really have this life outside of the spirit. You know, once we die, we're dead. There's a whole study on on the afterlife and things like that because I don't believe in an immortal soul, I don't believe in an eternal torment. And I think all those things are just very old lies, but I'm not going to get into it here. But the point is that we, from the very beginning, were made as vessels. Doesn't mean we're little gods. Doesn't mean we are, you know, divine inside, like the New Age or the Word of Faith movement. will try to tell you, but we were made as templates, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. That was from the very beginning. Adam was a type for the one to come. Now, there's a very important difference between Adam and which is the first human being in the incarnation. And it all has to do with free will and the spirit and all the stuff we're gonna get into. But let's do a quick recap on everything we've talked about. So we talked about predestination, how God predetermines all things. You know, even something like casting lots in the Bible was something that God predestined. And this is all from previous episodes. So if if you haven't checked those out, please go listen to them. There's so much great content there, a lot of detail. I really wanna give you as much information as possible. Because these things are not only interesting to me, but I think they're very debated, and they lead to serious theological conclusions, right? That's really the ultimate thing. Armenianism or the belief in free will as an impact in your salvation, is very prevalent today, even in in people who are very biblically sound, which is just amazing to me, that they have such a gross oversight of Scripture when it comes to this kind of stuff. But it leads to very serious theological problems. It leads you potentially into works-based mindset of salvation. Uh, it leads you to believe you know different things about God that are inconsistent or rob glory from God, as we'll see. So we, we talked about a lot of this stuff in the previous episodes. But just to move on, we also talked about election, how from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's always about God's choices, not ours. Ours are secondary. You can read the Bible as sort of this unfolding thing of of our choices too but it's really not it's really god's choices it's all about god god has always chosen the people that he saves and he's also chosen to not save people right people don't like that but it's true evil and reprobation are predestined a reprobation is the opposite of elect it's people who have been passed over evil is necessary it has a purpose in our timeline there's no such thing as meaningless evil. Nothing in the Bible that's evil has ever happened that's meaningless. It was always attributed to God in some way in the sense that he had a purpose for it. Open theism is what results when you have a God that doesn't know the future and is just reacting to things like a million-armed octopus. But open theism isn't biblical and it, it's not the God of the Bible. Open theists, the, the God of open theism is the only God that's consistent with Armenianism, or the belief that, free, that we have free will, that we have libertarian free will, that we are like God, basically. God has libertarian free will, meaning he can make a choice free of influence. And the belief that we're like that, that's not only unsubstantiated for several reasons, as we went into, but it leads you to really serious theological problems. One of them being this, this idea that You know, open theism, that God doesn't know the future, right? God uses both good and evil to advance his plan. It's not up to us to judge his intentions. God's very transparent about everything that he owns. He owns when he ordains something, that he ordained it to come to pass, and he owns when he participates himself in what he's doing, blinding people, making them mute, deceiving the prophets, the lying prophets, so that they wouldn't tell the truth. Sending lying spirits, you know, the evil spirits and the devil obey God. They don't worship him, but they obey God. They have to. God is either bringing about evil himself or or justice, right? To, to advance his plan through justice, through judgment, or he's ordaining that evil happens so he can bring justice upon that evil and show his qualities, show his character God shows his justice through the reprobate, through the people that he was never going to save. That's what they're for. Remember Pharaoh, he was raised up for the sole purpose for God to, you know, liberate the Israelites and show his power. If Pharaoh wasn't there, he wouldn't be able to show his power. And he shows his mercy and love and forgiveness through the elect. Both sides are shown through history. That's why you need an elect who are predestined, and that's why you need uh, a reprobate. If you could lose your salvation, how does that work with God's plan of having people that he's chosen, never mind you know, prophecy? If people could flip-flop at any point in time, how, how could he ever have anybody fulfill his plans? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. We also looked at free will before that, and this is one of those things, again, I encourage you to go back to it if you haven't. I believe it's episode five, but we looked at our free will versus God's free will. We can't choose without influence. We looked at something called the illusion of the local perspective, where on our level of perception, things seem very chaotic. But if you advance several levels above, everything is super organized. That's the case everywhere you look. You look at a blunder blood under a microscope. It seems like a war zone or anything under a microscope, really, right? But then you zoom out, and it's like, wow, that's like, just nice and peaceful. It's really, you know, my hand looks normal. Thank God. But zoomed in, it looks like crazy. That's that's the illusion of our limited perspective. We looked at hormones and how they influence personality. It's inescapable, like uh, the Fisher personality test done by Helen Fisher, psychology. Uh, the subconscious generating our thoughts and patterns and choices before we even make them automatic processes like heuristics. There's nothing that's important. That's under our control. This whole libertarian free will thing. It's a total illusion. And I believe it's tied to the garden of Eden. I think that Satan used this idea of free will that you can be free, that you don't need to surrender you. You know, you have freedom through rebellion. You have freedom through using your free will. You can be like God, right? That's, that's, there's a whole thing we can talk about that. But this episode is going to hopefully tie all that together. And and the big question is this, if Christ is the example we're being conformed to, right? If that was predestined, you know, the type from Adam, from the very beginning, that was the whole point to bring us to Christ. Then did Christ have free will? as a human being? Because he was both human and divine, but he, did he have free will? And what does that say about our free will? In other words, did Christ have two wills or did he have one will? Right? Because we know he's divine. We know he's human as well. Is it even possible to have two libertarian free wills? What does that say about free will? And so it breaks down into two camps. The first camp is called diothelitism. It's a fancy word for just a Basically believing in two free wills, it proves basically that you know you have the human will and you have the the divine will. That's the diothelitism camp, and it's pretty popular. You know, one one of the things they use as a as a proof text is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ says, "You know, not my will be done, but yours." But a quick rebuttal to that, and you could probably already know what <laughs> you know what stance I'm on. But a quick rebuttal is this: God experienced regret when he when he flooded the world, right? When it got to that point where he had to just delete everything. He was still omniscient. He knew it was going to happen, yet he still experienced regret. Jesus wept over Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. He had emotions. He was human. Was he omniscient in all those times? Of course he was omniscient. He knew everything. So how do we balance that? Well, does that mean that he have two wills? No. No. God can have emotions. God can experience things even though he's predetermined them. He's still, when it was Jesus, he's living them out moment by moment. Even though he knew everything, he still experienced things, right? And God's emotions are not like ours. He's he's much more complex. So it doesn't prove, the Garden of Gethsemane does not prove that Jesus, and we'll get more into this, but it doesn't prove that Jesus had two wills when he said, not my will be done, but yours and we'll explain that more a little bit later. But the second camp is monothelitism. Monothelitism is Jesus had one will, okay? And I believe that's consistent with Scripture. I believe it's consistent with everything we've talked about in the last, whatever, 10 hours of content of predestination, election, all that stuff. It shows that we don't have a free will like we think we do. And I think that Jesus had one will, because he's one person, right? Some people call this a heresy. It's not a heresy, because you can have an idea of monothelitism and not break the standard that was created at the Council of Chalcedon, which we'll get into, which is two natures, one person. Okay, so why is monothelitism not a heresy? Because the will is tied to the person, not the nature. That's the way I see it. I believe that Jesus had his divine nature and his human nature, and his divine nature is the spirit, because God is spirit, which we'll review. And that spirit overcame the human nature to do the will of God completely because God was inhabiting a human body. He had a human body. He was fully human, and he was also fully spirit. They can be transposed. He had one will, though, because he's one person, he's not two persons, even though he had two natures. And so this is why it's still in alignment with the Council of Chalcedon, which we'll get into in just a little minute. But a couple of disclaimers first, the incarnation in and of itself is one of those mysteries, right? Where, where's the line between, you know, human and divine? <laughs> Maybe there is no line, right? But there's definitely a line in the sense that there's two natures. He's fully human and he's fully God. Many have debated about this, how it works. There's so much about this, we'll cover some of the history. And throughout the process, the important thing to remember is two things. First, one side is labeled the other as heretics all the time. That's been pretty consistent. Uh, But the standard that was come about through the Council of Chalcedon, which was in 451 AD, was that Christ had two natures, but he's one person. That's the best that anybody could come up with to explain what's going on. Two natures, one person. And again, the question is, is free will or this idea of will part of nature or is it part of personhood? I'm going to make the case that it's part of personhood. I believe there's a lot of support for that because first and foremost, inanimate objects can have natures but they don't have wills. A rock can have a nature. It's it's hard, it's soft, it's spiky maybe, I don't know. It can have a nature. Everything has a nature. But a rock doesn't have a will. And so this is why will is part of personhood. He's one person with one will. So let's get into some history. Starting in the 3rd and 4th century, this is when it kind of was really, I mean, really shortly after uh, Christ left the earth right a couple you know, 100 200 years people were already debating about who was he how you know how do we fit this into our head <laughs> the idea that god became a human being it's it's crazy right so alexandria was one camp which basically took john 114 you know the logos became flesh so and the word became flesh dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, you know, they took that theology, which is Christian theology, and basically said God became man and he had, it was an indwelling of the Spirit. And and there was one will and that's it. But the problem was they also, as you'll see, became misaligned in that they believed that there was one nature as well. To the contrary of that was Antioch. Antioch was another, you know, Christian hotbed. And they looked at God becoming the Logos, right? The Logos becoming a human being, completely a human being, and he had two natures, right? Two separate natures. But at the same time, now just really quick here, notice how they were more Armenian because they wanted to preserve this sense of free will. But at the same time, by coming up with this idea of like fully human and fully divine, they also came up with two persons, which was heretical, right? So this caused a lot of debate, obviously, several councils, but Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD was when it all was kind of decided on for the rest of history, which is they looked at Apollinarianism, which was from Alexandria by a guy named Apollinaris, who basically said, you know, okay, Jesus had a body soul, just as the Hebrews believed, but he had a rational mind. It was this whole idea of the rational mind. And that was taken place by the Logos. The Logos took over his mind, and so he had one nature, one will, but he was also, you know, not human in that sense, right? Not fully human if he was just one nature. And so it was considered a a heresy because it denied the full humanity of Christ. But on the, on the converse, you had Nestorianism. Nestorius was a patriarch from Antioch, and he argued that Christ had two natures, but therefore two persons, right? And so they were trying to just wrap their minds around this, and that was considered a heresy because it was splitting Christ up into, it's like this multiple personality disorder type of thing, right? And so from this, it, it led to this conclusion. Christ had two natures, one person, do not mix the natures and do not divide the person. That was the the baseline that they came up with. And ever since then, there were a lot of other things that happened to to give you some context. So actually about 100 years before this, when the Gnostics were kind of influencing the church as well, and they were influencing the church even until this day. But there's something called Docetism, which rejected the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., and they basically argue that Jesus was just an illusion, kind of like a just a spirit, right? They didn't believe in the in the incarnation. Then, in the fifth century, after the Council of Chalcedon, you had the Oriental Orthodox, not to be confused with Eastern Orthodox. There's kind of a separate branch. They split off because they rejected the Council of Chalcedon. They said God had, you know, Christ had only one transcendent nature, one will. So they accepted the the heresy at the time, right? and it still is. I believe I believe Christ has two natures. Then you had Luther in, in the Reformation, and, and in the Reformation, you had a couple things going on. First, Luther, and he was kind of like Alexandrianism, where he believed almost in one nature. He came up with this thing called the communication of attributes, communicatio idiomatum. And it's sort of this idea that the, the the nature of the divinity and the nature of humanity, were kind of communicating with each other within Christ. And this this led to, many have criticized this because it's it's confusing the natures, right? You can't confuse the natures. It's blurring the line between human and divine. It's kind of leaning into one nature. And just to note, Lutherans still believe in transubstantiation. So they believe in some version of, you know, Christ being fully physically present in the Eucharist. And and that's a heresy, and we're not going to get into that. But there's a lot of things that are not in alignment with, with that view. The Reformation also continued, and later in the 1500s, people started to redefine this communication of attributes to where rather than them communicating with each other, right, you had Christ, the person, And those both attributes are communicating to him. So he's receiving both divine communication from his divine attributes and human communication. He's experiencing things. He's having joy, sadness, you know, pain, all these things that he wouldn't experience as a divine uh, person, which he also experiences simultaneously. So, you know, we can't understand that because we're not divine, but that kept the natures distinct. And so that was important because it kept the natures distinct and the person separate as well. One person, two natures. In the 1800s, you had something called Kenotic Christology or kenosis, which is based on Philippians 2. This is kind of like their main proof text. Philippians 2, you know, verses 5 through 7. And it goes, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So this whole idea of emptying himself, God, Christ gave up his divinity entirely. And there's there's a lot of problems with that. There's a lot of tangents that this theology leads into that are heretical, like Unitarianism. Unitarians don't believe in the Trinity, Uh, Gnosticism, right? Mormons, they believe that Christ is created. They don't believe in the traditional Trinity. So there's a lot of tangents with that. And it happened around the same time that these religions like Mormonism, Unitarianism were coming about. And so it it definitely influenced those, I believe. So what can we take from all this? This is by no means a, an exhaustive look at history of, of Christology and, and incarnation, but it gives you some points to consider. And the first is, if he gave, if Christ gave up his divinity, which is Kenotic Christology, then that means he can't be God. He can't redeem, right? Because to redeem, you need to be God. You, you, only God can forgive sins. Only Christ's self-existent blood, which is eternal, could pay for sins for everybody forever. See how that works? Christ needs to be God in order for salvation to work. That's why Unitarians are wrong. That's why Mormons are wrong. That's why everybody who doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ as God, as the self-existing God who existed before time, you don't have a view of salvation that's correct. Now, if he was an illusion, like the Gnostics believe in the Docetism before uh, the Council of Chalcedon, meaning, again, he's not fully human He can't take on sin. He can't take on sin. He can't relate to us. He can't redeem us. It's not the correct view of Christ. It makes... It doesn't give Christ that human, that relatable sense of God became one of us. He humbled himself and he died the death that we deserve if he's not human. And, you know, Muslims believe this too, I believe. They they don't believe that Christ was crucified. They don't believe that he resurrected, he, you know, he was a spirit of some kind. I mean, these things, these things are not unique to to Christianity. So you have to just be aware of these different beliefs so that certain things don't, don't deceive you. If he had two persons, which was Nestorianism, then you have division and conflict within the person of Christ. How can we worship two people? Which Christ do you worship, the human or the divine one? If you're worshiping the divine one, then what about the human one? You see, it just it's just weird to think of two persons within christ that's why it's a heresy what about the trinity right you have three people but then one of them is two people that doesn't make any sense that's not consistent with scripture but then if he had one nature again which is what the oriental orthodox believe and i'm gonna argue that the people who believe that uh that he has one nature that's also still a heresy right i mean it's it's you're confusing and blending the natures. If he doesn't have a human if he doesn't, if he has one nature, let's put it this way. (laughs) Some of this stuff, you know, twist your tongue a little bit. If he has just one nature, he can't take on the sins. He was made sin. He emptied himself. Scripture is very clear. He became sin for us who, you know, he who knew no sin, right? In our place. And so, He can't redeem if he has just one nature. He has to have both the human nature and the divine nature. So how do we filter all this stuff? What's orthodox Christianity? Well, orthodox Christianity, first and all, is Christ was fully human and fully divine. That's the mystery of the incarnation. It's exploring how these two dance together that gives us great insight into Christ, into into our own lives, into the nature of free will, which is what we're getting into today. If Christ is fully human, he can take our sins on and relate to us, become sin to be punished in our place. He's the propitiation for our sins. If he's fully divine, he can redeem us because he has self-existent blood. He is the self-existent God who is the source of life. He is life itself. So that sacrifice is forever. That's the whole point. And God is the only one with the power to forgive sins, and Jesus is God. So he needs to be both. Christ has two natures, but he's one person. So now the question goes back again once, once we consider all this is, did he have two wills or one? And a lot of people argue that he had two wills because they're trying to hang on to this libertarian free will. But will is not tied to his nature. It's tied to his person. Okay, if he has two wills, if we say that, what we're doing, and and notice this, because this is the Arminian error, this is the free will error, the open theist error. When you say that Christ had two wills, inadvertently, you are equating human will and God's will as the same. Do you see what happens there? That, well, he had a, a human will and he had a, and a divine will. So they must be equally the same. Both He had two libertarian free wills in that sense. Meaning he had a will that could choose without influence and he had a will that could choose without influence. That makes absolutely no sense because they're not sharing space. Our will does not share space with God, and I'll prove it to you. In the, in the last episode, or actually two episodes ago, we talked about how we don't make choices free of influence. It's impossible, literally impossible. We are predictable beings. Granted, we're very complex beings, but we're predictable. We have so many things that influence our choices. From the day we're born, we're on this trajectory, this path through time and space that God is predestined. And if you're elect, then he's predestined in a way that's better than you could have ever chosen yourself with your own free will. How could you choose, if, you ha- if we had libertarian free will, how could we possibly choose our way to success and back to God when we don't know everything? God knows everything, and he's morally perfect, and he made the choices for you so that you would experience them. Now, do you have choice? Do you experience choices? Yes, we experience choices, but experiencing a choice is not the same as choosing from nothing. That's what God does. He has libertarian free will. When libertarian free will takes over a body, it's still just one will. This is what we're going to get into. The second point is will is not part of nature, but of personhood. Think about Avatar, the movie Avatar. Now, I don't really watch movies. I think most of them are just Babylonian programming. But some of them can be used for examples. Avatar is a great example. You know, when when they're in their avatars, it's one person, but he's got two natures. He's got the nature in his little, you know, pod or wherever he's sitting, and he's got the avatar, right? You could say that, I guess, about online chatting. You have your human nature. You have your online profile that has a nature. Are you two persons with two wills? No, you have one person with one will. Inanimate objects can have natures, but they don't have a will. You can have multiple natures, that's another thing, right? For example, you know, a, a woman could be a mother, a boss, a sister, an aunt. All, all four of those could be valid. Does that mean that she have four wills? That she has an aunt will and then, you know, a, a mom will and a boss will? No, that's not how we see. We have different desires, but we're one person with one will. And sometimes those things conflict, right? And they they create conflict and we we have to decide, we have to aim our will one or the other, one way or the other. But it doesn't mean we have five wills. We have one will and competing desires. This is really important to remember. You know, when you have split personality people who are genuinely like, you know, have serious mental problems, they have split personality disorder. In those cases, those people have different wills. Why? Because they have different persons. They have multiple persons. One minute they're, you know, they're this person, and then the other minute they don't even know about the other person. They're literally switching personalities, which is a disorder. And, of course, they have more than one will, and that's why it's a disorder. So here's a couple more considerations for you. Let's remember total depravity. Our will operates in limited parameters, okay? It's it's predictable. We have factors that constantly influence us. Another thing is, we're made in the image of God. Remember that, we were made in the image. And image doesn't mean, you know, like the way we think about it today. Remember who wrote the Bible? Moses wrote the Bible. Images to them had a specific connotation. From the very beginning, we were the whole plan was for God's Spirit to come into us and use us. Jesus was the example of that. Let's look at a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The temple is nothing without the spirit. It's a physical structure. Now, we are living physical structures, but we don't have life eternal. We don't have awareness. We don't. We can't make a different choice until the spirit comes into that temple. That's the whole point. That was the point from the very beginning. God had to create a context for such a profound existence. And that's why we have history. That's why we have evil. That's why we have everything. Romans 8, verse 16 the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit bears with our spirit. We have a a body-soul, right? Again, this is a different study with the afterlife and things like that, but the the Hebrews believed in a body-soul union. They didn't believe in an immortal soul after death. So when we get the Spirit, the Spirit himself bears, it's with us. We have our own soul and our own spirit but that's contingent. It is contingent upon God and a relationship with God. If we want to we want to live forever, then we need the Spirit of God in us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, the Spirit is what's causing life. He's what's causing everything to happen. We are vessels. It doesn't mean we're inanimate. We're living vessels, but nonetheless, we are vessels. Without the Spirit, we're dead. The whole plan from the very beginning was for God to be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So this is about the future kingdom, the the final point where this is going. Remember, God declared the end from the beginning. What we're experiencing is time moving forward, but God's already planned it, and it's all, and he worked his way backwards to create reality. He declared the end from the, the beginning. What was the end? For God to be all in all. As in, Christ will be here on earth. God will be fully in him. He is God. He's going to rule the earth. We're all going to have the Holy Spirit. We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ, God will be all in all. He'll be in everything. The kingdom of heaven will be on earth. Right? That's what the Our Father, what we pray for all the time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so, when we're born again... I want you to keep all this in mind because the conclusion I'm leading to is, is I think, very well supported by Scripture. But when we're born again, we get a, a new will. We get the Spirit. We get a whole. We get the Holy Spirit. We get a new will. We get a new heart and new desires. We don't get a second will. This is very really important. Why? Because we become a new person. We, we transform from the inside out. We're given a new heart. A new heart comes with a new will. It's not like we still have our old heart that has an old will, and then we have a new heart that has a new will, and then you have these two wills that are kind of battling against each other. That's not what's happening. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may be abound? May abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin Still live in it. Romans says, it's, the chapter's titled, Dead to Sin, Alive to God. When And there's so many more verses about this, but when we're born again, there's two things that happen. We're don't just, We don't just get born again, we also die. Christ's death on the cross allowed us to die a spiritual death. You cannot be free of sin unless you die. That's the law. Christ's death allowed us to die spiritually so that we could be born again and transformed. Christ's death is a template for us to be buried with him and to die with him. That's our old selves. Our old selves that was totally depraved and unable to be free. Don't you get it? When we get that spirit, when we get the Holy Spirit and we're born again, we get a new will, we get a new heart, new desires, and we are remade. We're a new creation. But we're a, we're a creation that's truly free. Because you're free to follow the law of God, to love God with all your heart, and to do things that you would have never done. That's true freedom. It's when the Spirit comes into your temple. Until then, your behavior is predictable because sin is predictable. All the flavors of sin is predictable. There's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes. So... When we're born again, we get a new will. We get one will. We have one will, but we get a new will. Why? Because the Spirit is superseding the flesh. Galatians 5, 17. Keep in step with the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The flesh has its desires. It generates a limited will that we have. Until somebody is born again and they see the truth, they're just operating according to the flesh, which is predictable because it has predictable desires. We already covered that two two episodes ago. You really owe it to yourself to study these things because it gives you a true perspective of what's going on. When we receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God's spirit. God is able to make choices free of influence and he's morally perfect. We, by extension, get access to that. Therefore, we become free when we receive the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point. We aren't free before that. That's why Christ says the truth will set you free. Of course it will. Truth is being in communion with God and getting His Spirit so that we have true freedom. Throughout the Bible, the the story of salvation has always been about freedom. We are free through God not free in of ourselves. Satan's lie is that you don't need God to be free. That's why free will, this whole idea of libertarian free will is a lie from the devil itself. It's Luciferian, the light bringer, the one who brings freedom and enlightenment through this grand illusion that you can create your reality. Do we have a will of our own? No. We have a new will that is God's will flowing through us. We become aware of God's will for our lives and we can interact with that. That's the mystery, right? That's the dance of life of once we get that will and we have access to it and we're born again, we truly want to serve God and love God and do godly things, the process of sanctification, of being conformed to the image of Christ, that's the rest of our existence. It is becoming completely in union with God in our bodies while still preserving our individuality. That's the beauty of it. The spirit is the reason for everything. He's the reason for gifts. And I didn't have Bible verses for these, but they're all, you know, this is very scripturally supported for the Holy gifts, right? Different various talents, both old Testament, and new Testament supports being born again, new desires, getting discernment, working miracles, resurrection, healing, exorcism, Revelations, prophecy, spiritual growth, that's all from the Spirit. John four twenty four, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. So God is Spirit. Spirit is the only way that we can look at God and maintain His divine qualities, which is omnipotence, omnipresence, meaning he's everywhere, he's all-powerful, omniscience, he knows everything. Also, the spirit can coexist and be overlapped in the physical. How do we know that? The spirits possess people in the Bible, throughout the scriptures. The spirit of God also entered into his elect and made them do his will. I'll give you a couple examples. And these are just a few, but there's so many. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. This is a famous account of David's census bringing pestilence. You know, God was wanting to judge Israel for for various reasons, probably idolatry. And so he let Satan incite David. Did David have free will in this issue? Could David have avoided that with his free will? Was he even aware of that? No, he experienced it as a choice that he made. But in the background, Satan, who is also a spirit, incited him to do that. 1 Kings 22, verses 21 through 23. This is when God is enacting judgment by letting a spirit come uh, and deceive certain prophets. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. I believe this is about Ahab. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And so this lying spirit went out and and basically caused confusion in the mouth of his prophets. Did the prophets have free will? Did they have libertarian free will? No. The spirit came into them because they're vessels and forced them to lie. And to do these things, so that God's judgment would be pronounced. Look at one Samuel ten verses nine through ten. When he, this is Samuel, turned his back to leave. I'm uh, sure this is Saul turning to leave Samuel. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So what happened here? The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and he prophesied. Did he have any choice in that matter? No, he did not. There's no libertarian free will. If the Spirit comes over you, you have a new will. You do God's will. This is important. These are glimpses of, shadows of, types of the ultimate reality, which is God being all in all. The Holy Spirit being in us and we doing God's will and enjoying it and wanting to do it because that's the way we were made to do it. We were made to be vessels. Look at 1 Samuel a little bit later, chapter 14, verse 20. Then Saul and all his people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. So this is actually one of many times this happens in the Old Testament, but God has given these people over to destruction. And what does he do? He causes confusion among them. There's so many times when large armies are against the Israelites, but then they end up fighting each other. <laughs> I mean, they're totally gone mad. Why? Because God's Spirit has influenced them. They didn't have free will in the matter, right? So maybe they had limited will that they were experiencing choices and doing things, but then the ultimate will is God's will. It's God's Spirit. And if God's Spirit overtakes you, you don't have free will anymore. It's not like... You have your will and God's will, and they're kind of 50-50, and they're sharing a space that's not how it works. That's why the incarnation was just one will, not two. But look at Ezekiel uh, chapter 3, verse 24. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house. The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. He was on the ground. He's on his face. He was afraid. The spirit came into him and got him up. Did he have free will in the matter? No, he did not. Mark 9, verse 17 through 18. Jesus healing a boy with a demon. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit makes him mute, so he has no way to refuse that. It seizes him and throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth. And some of the other gospels say that he gets thrown in the fire, I believe, and you know so the spirit's obviously trying to kill him. You know, another example I didn't put on here is um, the pigs. When Jesus exercises and he heals another person with a demon, and the legion begs Jesus to throw them into uh, the, the horde of pigs, right? What do the pigs do? The pigs run off the cliff. Now, pigs are obviously lesser than human beings, so that's not maybe the best argument. But the point is you can see a pattern. You can see a trend. You don't have free will. You have a limited will that's based on the desires that your flesh and your mind and your psyche and your hormones generate. And it's very convincing, but it's predictable. Then there's God's will, which is free of influence, which is being shared with us. And we get glimpses of what happens when spirits overtake bodies. You don't have a choice in the matter. You do what the spirit wants. Now, in this case, it's a, with God and the Holy Spirit, it's a beautiful union where the things that we do and we want to do, we want to do them. We get pleasure out of helping the poor when we're born again. We get pleasure out of going to church, having fellowship with others, out of reading the Bible. That's why you have new desires, because your heart has been replaced with a heart of flesh. And that comes with just one will. Your old will that was just based on, you know, the flesh and and your hormones and your you know, psyche and your trauma and your upbringing, that's been replaced with a truly free will, the will of God and the will that wants to do good. So another thing to consider, and so I've laid out all this stuff about the spirit for a reason, because today there's a guy named Dr. William Lane Craig, who's very popular, and he's come up with something called neo-apollinarianism, where his idea is that the Logos, God as Spirit, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was the subconscious, but Jesus had a human mind, right? So he's he's wrestling with this, and being the subconscious, you know, that way he, he's still human, but then he's kind of getting, you know, these, these cues from his subconscious, and, and they're kind of separate, but kind of not. I I don't find that... His presentation is very convincing, and I'll tell you why. Because ultimately, if it's based on the subconscious, and all these people, even the old Apollinarianism, Apollinarianists who argued about the rational mind, the mind is contingent on the brain. When the brain dies, there's no more mind. This is the error that was made in Apollinarianism, besides the fact that he just had one nature, but they were just putting so much emphasis on the mind and, and the mind being sort of this consciousness and soul and the rational soul and the immortal soul. All that stuff was falling into place. But there is no immortal soul. We have a mind. Obviously, we have consciousness. But once you die, that's it. There's no more consciousness. And if you don't believe that right now, that's fine. But again, if the if, if it's based on the mind, and if we're talking about subconscious being where the logos came, Where is the support for, where is the scriptural support? I just covered all the support that God is spirit, that God enters the bodies of people or lets other spirits do that and controls them through spiritual means. It's never talking about the mind or the, or the subconscious. And the mind is contingent on the brain. If the brain dies, once you die, there's no more logos. Is that right? No. So ultimately, I don't think Dr. William Lane Craig is correct and, and those people who argue the Logos is what came in as the mind. I think that it's about the spirit. I think that the Logos, God is spirit, right? The Trinity is spirit. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, and, and the Logos, they're all spirit. But the Logos took on flesh. So what does that mean? Well, the Logos came into a human body from the very beginning. God, Jesus' body was fully human. He was a fully human being. He felt grief. He was tempted in the desert. He had anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane. These were experiences. They weren't two wills wrestling with each other for the same space. God, Jesus had a fully human nature. When we are born again, we get one will, the will of God, that fights temptation. We're struggling with our old patterns, with our old sins, but we don't have two wills fighting against each other. It's very important to make a distinction between the will and desires. You have desires. But your will, when you're born again, and that's why, again, you can't lose your salvation, your will is to not sin. We don't enjoy sinning. We still do it. We wrestle with these things because we're human and our flesh is weak. We need, that's why we need incorruptible bodies. That's why we need bodies that, that don't want to sin. That's why we will get bodies that are incorruptible. But until then, we're going to struggle with our sins. But that doesn't mean we have two wills. We have one will when we're born again. Right? And that's why you can't lose your salvation, because you want to please God, on top of all the other things we talked about with eternal security. But this is a shadow. Being born again is really a shadow of the fulfillment in Christ, where God is all in all. Christ was God in the flesh, experiencing humanity, not God's will wrestling with, with a human will. And, you know, there's these you know they're both wrestling like two sumo wrestlers uh you know for the same space and i'll prove it to you with some other things too but first consider predestination as it relates to christ's ministry let's look at a couple verses for that john 2 verse 1 through 4 the wedding at cana on the third day there was a wedding at cana in galilee and the mother of jesus was there <laughs> i love this little moment jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out the mother of jesus said to him they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. And my, and my hour has not yet come. And this is, let's just take a moment to appreciate that even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he still had a mom. Moms will be moms no matter what. But, you know, this is, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? That means he knew, okay, it's my ministry's not yet to start doing miracles and for people to start, you know, Uh, doing that and recognizing me as such. So he's predestined. Why? Because he knows when his hour is going to come. John 13, verses 18 through 19. I am not speaking of all of you. I will know whom I have chosen. There's the election again. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, he's quoting Psalm uh, 41, verse 9 there we'll look at it but i'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place you may believe that i am he so again election predestination fulfilling of prophecy all these things cannot happen if god is an open theist god reacting to history they only happen with god being completely sovereign and predestining both good and evil because being betrayed is evil but psalm 41:9 Let's look at that really quick. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. that was written, you know, what, thousand years before Christ, something like that. Matthew 3, verse 13 through 15, the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. All the kings had to be anointed by a prophet. That was the prophecies, right? That was the way the things were going to go about. John the Baptist was the last kind of prophet, that went, the Eli- coming in the spirit of Elijah, the one that was making the way straight for the Messiah. And he's anointing the Messiah. That was predetermined. It was predestined. It wasn't just like, you know what? I feel like having John anoint me today. No, that was predestined. And what happened at the baptism of Jesus? Well, the Trinity revealed itself, okay? He had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one spot, which is pretty crazy to think about. Matthew 4, verse 18 through 20, Jesus calls the first disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Do you think they had a choice? I've mentioned this several times, but do you think they have the choice? No, they didn't. Christ wasn't saying, gosh, I hope you follow me, please. You know, I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's going to be really cool and exciting. No, he was speaking the future. He was creating reality with his words. The same God that created the world with his words, when he speaks like this, he's speaking and creating. You know, that's that that's the lie of the New Age law of attraction. They're trying to make you think that you are like this. That when you say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, people will immediately drop and, and come follow you. No, that's God. That's that's Christ that was doing that. But that's predestination. They didn't have a choice. That's election. God chose for them, and thank God that he did. John 6, verse 64 through 66. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew. Omniscience and predestination go hand in hand. If you don't believe in predestination, then you cannot believe in a God that's that's omniscient, and therefore you don't believe in the God of the Bible. And he said, "This is why I told you that no one come to, can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father." So, this is the whole thing about eat my flesh, drink my blood. Some people left; they were, you know, they didn't get it. But that this whole point was to show why did God predestine that? He predestined people who wouldn't get it. He blinded their eyes. Why? Because he was to teach a point that nobody who comes to me comes of their own will. They come because the Father draws them. And I've chosen to bring them. And I also know who's not going to come and believe. That's predestination and the election and reprobation. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So important. So many things going on in here. It's so rich, man. Every, I swear, every, every scripture is so rich in, in so many things. First off, do you think that Jesus, being omniscient, knew what they were going to say? Like, why would he ask, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Do you think he didn't know? Like, he's like, man, I really wonder what people are talking about me. Do you think he didn't know? No, of course not. If He knows everything. But so, so then why would he ask? Again, it's to show a precedent, to create a precedent. Because when you ask, problem The apostles respond, reaction. That creates a precedent, solution. God is using history to show who he is. And this whole thing led to Simon revealing that he believes Jesus is the Christ, which shows all the other apostles and us and everybody else in history why that happened, because the Father revealed it. You cannot come to me unless the Father is in you and, and you know, sends his spirit in you and, and reveals that to you. You can't see the truth. You can't make a different choice unless I intervene. That's the whole point of this story. It's not this random dialogue of people, you know, Jesus being uncertain of what people are, are taught. I mean, you could read this as an open theist, And and Jesus is like really genuinely not sure what people are talking about him. And then he's also not sure, well, what do you say? Like, are you guys like, do you believe that I'm God? Like, what do you guys think I am? He's like uncertain. And then, you know, Peter confesses the Christ and then Jesus says, wow, you know, that, that must have been God who showed you that, I guess. That's not the way to read this. The way to read this is from God being an omniscient Self-existing being that reveals truth through dialogues and through 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 setting things up masterfully, where the apostles were still themselves, they still retain their individuality, but yet they played into God's plan perfectly and and revealed the truth of of what's being revealed here. That that the Father reveals the truth, not your own flesh and its own desires. That's the whole point. You don't have free will. And remember, the last thing I'll mention is, remember, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Now, it depends who you ask, you know, but some, most people say over 300. Now, the question is, how could that be possible if, 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 he, if his life, to the very you know, minute, wasn't predestined? How could he fulfill so many prophecies? That, sh- that proves to you that his life was predestined. And if his life is the one that we're being conformed to, do we have libertarian free will? The answer is, of course, no, we don't. Because we're being conformed to the image of Christ whose life was predestined. Now, the challenge comes up of Gethsemane and where he says, not my will, but yours be done. So what are we to make of that? Is, is, is there, are there two wills going on there? Is Christ admitting that he has like a human will and then there's this divine will How do we read that? And first and foremost, Hebrews 12, 2, I want to remind you that we have to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was a joy for him. (laughs) The cross, you know, getting nailed to the cross wasn't a joy. It was the joy of inheriting the kingdom that his father had chosen for him as a gift inheriting a people that his father had chose for him. Remember, it's all about the father and the son. The joy of receiving that gift and pleasing the father, glorifying the father. The joy of having a people. That's a great joy. And so, that joy was, was very much present in his life from the very beginning. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He knew his future. So, with that context, is it really... Would it be a true interpretation to read Gethsemane as like he's uncertain about doing this or he has a separate will? How do we read this, this moment of of humanity, this moment of weakness, right, where where Christ is showing his humanity? So first, again, we have to remember all these predestination things. The answer is that was this suddenly a different moment? No. No this was also predestined to to prove a point, to show a precedent. Christ's will is the Father's will. That was the whole point. The Logos is the second person of the Trinity and the Trinity does not have multiple wills. It has one will because it's one God. Now there's three persons, but all their wills are in communion. That's a whole nother thing to think about, right? But they're, there's one, you know, the, the, the Son doesn't have a separate will from the Father. The Spirit doesn't do willy-nilly what it's doing, and then God the Father is like, hey, come on, I want you to do this. That's not how the Trinity works. But guess what? If you're an Armenian, again, if you, if you believe that Christ died for everybody's sins, and, and it's up to our free will to choose to be saved, to, to choose to have faith, that's what you believe in. You believe that the, the Father chose some people. That's unarguable. The Spirit sealed those people, but then Christ died for everybody, even the ones that he knew would reject him and the Father didn't choose. Now you're setting up Christ had his will, the Spirit has his own will, the Father has his own will. You have three wills, three separate wills. That doesn't work. The Trinity is three persons, but they have a a common will. And the fullness of deity was in Christ. So he has one will. He's doing the Father's will. So how do we explain this? Well, not my will be done, but yours is not a statement that he has a different will than God or he has two wills. It is a a measurement of his desire, right? Saying will doesn't mean, oh, there you go. Christ has a free will and then he has a divine will. No, he's using the word will as a way to describe the desires he's feeling as a human being, right? Your flesh generates, remember, the spirit and the flesh are opposed to one another. When you're born again, you don't get a second will. You get a new will. Do you still have flesh that's generating desires for you? Like lust, anger, jealousy, you know, greed? Yes, That's not a second will. Those are desires. Anxiety, that's a desire. Desire for comfort. Christ experienced those desires. He experienced joy. He experienced sadness. He's human. He can experience anxiety. The desire of that flesh in that moment in Gethsemane, right before he was arrested, of his human flesh was to, to be safe. Like that's the most fundamental human desire to be safe. But that moment was the moment where he showed over and over again, like he showed everywhere else, the triumph of God's spirit, the triumph of God's will over the flesh. Not my will, meaning not my desires, but yours be done. Which is his his will has always been the Father's will. That's pretty consistent throughout Christ's ministry. Christ never had his own will. He was always predestined, and he shares the will of the Father. The Trinity is one God with one will. Three persons, but they have a a communal will. They don't have different wills. They don't act discordantly with one another. They don't even experience discord with one another. So the the whole thing with Gethsemane is not Christ experiencing discord in the Trinity. It is Christ revealing his utmost human nature, and at the same time setting a precedent that God's Spirit has achieved what he set out to achieve through Adam. The whole point was, look, I'm creating vessels that I'm going to inhabit through my Holy Spirit, and they will perform what they need to do, but contingent upon my involvement, and I'll prove it to you through Christ. And history up to that point was a whole long lesson in why without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. So let's talk about original sin and sin nature, fallen nature, because the question is, how human was Jesus, right? If if he has just one will, but he has two natures, remember, human nature, divine nature. How human was he? How does that work? Well, there's very good answers to all these things. You know, a lot of the, the questions arise around this idea of how we reconcile him needing to be human, to, to relate to us, to take on sin, with him not sinning. He's never sinned. He's sinless. He was born sinless. So a couple terms that we need to get familiar with. Nature, first off, means it's part of you. Christ can't have a sin nature because Christ had no sin. We have a sin nature because we have sinned. We also have a sin nature because we desire to sin. Now, once you're born again, you know, those desires are getting diminished, but you still have desires. You still get, when you get tempted, you consider it, depending on the temptation. Christ did not have a desire to sin, nor did he ever sin. So he can't have a sin nature. And and pay attention to all this because this is very important. It'll lead us to some really important conclusions about free will, humanity, human nature, sin nature, all this stuff. The other term is fallen nature, right? And fallen nature is kind of different, kind of the same as sin nature, but fallen nature relates to a fallen world. It is the consequence, right? A fallen world is ruled by death, decay, suffering, evil. Jesus experienced decay. He experienced aging. He experienced suffering. He experienced death. He experienced all the, you know, fallen qualities of the world. But he didn't have a fallen nature. Why? Because nature, again, is part of you. And part of fallen nature is guilt. Why are those things happening? Why is death, decay, suffering, evil, all these things happening? Because of guilt. Somebody somewhere down the line messed up. And that's why the world is the way it is. And that's Adam. And that's the guilt of Adam. Christ did not have the guilt of Adam. He was not guilty. Otherwise, if he was guilty in any way, he couldn't have redeemed us. So he experienced a fallen world, but he wasn't fallen himself. He didn't have a fallen nature. He didn't have a sin nature. So what did he have? And this is so important. He had a human nature. Now, we're going to get into this about what a human nature is, but some argue that Adam didn't have a so there's the sin nature, right that that happened after the fall. We're all born into a sin nature. Adam before the fall didn't have a sin nature and so he made a free choice. We had we had free will basically before the fall, right And that's you know then after the fall, everybody's kind of I think this is the common view of total depravity. I disagree with this because I'm a little more extreme, I guess. But I think it's the truth. Ultimately, we don't have free will, even as a part of our default human nature, because it was never that intention. And I believe there's great biblical support for that. First off, Eve was tempted by a snake. And he played to all her desires. Desires of the eyes, the pride of life, desires of the flesh, all those things we talked about in the last episode. Did Eve have a choice No, Eve was influenced. Eve did not make a choice free of influence. She was constantly influenced. She was probably insecure that she was the newer creation and she was kind of the new kid on the block, wasn't as authoritative as Adam. Maybe that's what she felt. She wanted to be important. Satan attacked Eve for a very good reason. He attacked Eve first because she was newer. She was a little more ignorant. Doesn't mean she's less any less of a human being, but she was newer on the scene. Right? And so Satan took advantage of her innocence and influenced her based on the things that he knew were her desires. Satan plays to the ego, to the ego of pride, to the desires of flesh, the desires of the mind, all those human desires that God created, which we'll get into, that are that are good, that are part of human nature, Satan influenced those desires. There was no way that Eve could have made a different choice. And that's the whole point. You know, today, women's empowerment, this whole thing about feminism and and women's empowerment, it's a load of nonsense. And before you crucify me on that, first off, women are already equal to men. God created it that way. Women and men are equal. And the standard for a relationship is marriage in the Christian life. And that's higher than anything that modern culture will hold your intimacy and your relationships too. Because you also have a third person in that relationship, which is Christ. And that's your anchor. So this whole thing about women's empowerment, it's all about to destabilize the family unit. I could go on about this, but the point is, what's happening today is what's been happening since the beginning of time with the snake in the Garden of Eden. It's all about use your free will and be, go out there and work and pay taxes and do all the things that men do, and you know, challenge men on everything, and you don't need to be married. You can just, you know, do whatever you want. All these things are appeals. Look at the abortion issue. I mean, my gosh, not to open another can of worms, but it's all about free will, reproductive rights. It's your right for reproduction, healthcare rights. It's about you're. It's this humanistic, free will philosophy that they're using to justify murder and completely invert the natural order of things. It's it's lie from the Garden of Eden. And who is it targeting? Women. Because once you get the woman, you'll get the man to, to get on board. You destabilize the whole family union. So, but did Adam have a free choice in, in the matter? No, he didn't. He was tempted by his wife. Are you kidding me? His wife was, you know, he's in love with her and, you know, she has sexual power over him. So, of course, she's going to sway him. He wants to please her. He wants to do good and be accepted and all that stuff. And so he was very influenced by his wife. They had no ability to make a different choice. This is the point. Eden was not about showing that man has free will and then he used his free will to damn himself. No, it's not. No. free Eden was a control-free experiment all the independent variables were taken out, which is brilliant. It's the most brilliant thing you could think of to prove that God needed. It's to make a legal case for the cross and therefore the giving of the Holy Spirit freely, which is what the whole plan was about. God being all in all. The whole point was to create a legal precedent for God inhabiting the temple that he created. God's initials going to take it over without context. He's going to take it over with large swaths of context. And Eden was the first step of that, showing that without him doing that, was, was Adam and Eve born again? No. Was the spirit in them? No. They were just purely, they were body souls, but they were flesh. They were in the flesh. They had no trauma. They had no you know, wars. They had nothing. And even with that, human nature, with the things that it was created, self-awareness, desires, sexuality, hormones, emotions. These things aren't evil, but without God being in that temple and steering these things himself, they lead to evil. They lead to the fall. Fall leads to the curse, to sin nature for the rest of us because we're born into the momentum of those choices. And that's what happened. Adam and Eve had a human nature. Human nature is not bad. It has certain qualities. Christ had a human nature. The difference between Christ and Adam is that Christ was fully God. Obviously, the the spirit was fully in that body and was able to subdue it perfectly from the very beginning. He was sinless. And the difference between Adam was, Adam was just the body, the body, soul, but he was just the flesh. And the flesh cannot do anything, even when presented with completely perfect, pristine circumstances. These things that I just listed off, like self-awareness, hormones, emotions, sexuality, all this stuff, it's not, they're not evil things. They're part of human nature, but a couple examples. Okay, if I have a knife that's really sharp, i if you don't have a, a pro wielding that knife, you can really injure yourself. A bicycle is the same thing. A bike can be made very well, but if nobody's riding it, it's just going to fall over. Right? It has to be ridden to be to move around and to stand up and to be used. We are no different. Now we have a sense of self. We have this sense of autonomy. But I submit to you, based on many things we've covered, that that sense is not what it actually. It's an illusion. We still have individuality, but we're not completely free. And that's the illusion that we played into with Satan. And it's the illusion that drives the whole world today. You're free. You can be like God. Well, you can't unless you're born again. Then you will be like God, but be like God by being conformed to Christ. That's the whole point. See how that works? Christ took on human nature, which was the original template before the the fall before sin nature, he didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have a fallen nature. He's not guilty. He had a human nature with the things that are good that God created. Self-awareness, intelligence, creativity, emotions, thoughts, desires, sexuality, hormones, all these things that God created for his glory. But because the Spirit was fully in, the Spirit of God was fully in that body of Jesus Christ, and he is God, and he, they're together, human nature, divine nature. The spirit was able to bring into submission the, the flesh in its entirety and to use the vessel that God created to demonstrate his purposes and his glory, the way it was meant to be. That's why we're being conformed to the image of Christ, so that God may be all in all. So that Adam, who was a type for the one to come, right? we will be transformed. We are types. We're, we're images. We're Living images so that the Spirit can come inside the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like this, made like his brothers in every aspect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. In every aspect, in every respect, he had to be made human like Adam. So, how was he made human? Well, he didn't have a sin nature. He couldn't have had a fallen nature because he's not guilty. He had a human nature. What is human nature? We just talked about it. It comes with certain characteristics and qualities. But those qualities are contingent upon being used by the spirit. Just like a bike functioning properly is contingent upon somebody riding it. Just like a sharp knife is contingent upon some, like a professional chef using it so that it does its job correctly. It's the same thing. Sin nature and fallen nature are not essential to humanity. Human nature is, and Christ had a human nature. Hebrews four fifteen, Jesus is the great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. How does that work? Well, Christ was tempted, but he didn't desire to sin. He didn't consider it like we do. We consider it. We desire. We play it out in our minds. We have, you know, we've been sinning from the beginning, right? So we have memory that comes up and and wants to be satisfied. That's our sin nature. But But Jesus never had a sin nature. So even though the devil tempted him, he never considered it. He never you know, thought, oh gosh, man, I wonder what that would be like. He didn't have those kind of experiences. He can't be tempted. But he did experience those things. And now how does that actually play out? Who knows? That's the mystery of the incarnation. But he was was the Logos, the spirit of God himself was in a body. So what's the point of all this? Where, Where do we go with all this? Well, Adam and Eve did not make a free choice. That's the first thing. Human nature, even when you take out sin nature and fallen nature, human nature in and of itself is not free. Okay. Adam and Eve do not have a free will. They have a limited will that is still subject to influences, influences of internal influences, like hormones, sexuality, you know, all those things are influencing you. And external influences, like the snake who knows all those things about you and he can play to to your desires. Christ was the example that God can use his spirit through his creation perfectly. Christ is God proving his point. The whole point of having one will is to show that God's will is superior to man's will, which is the lie from the Garden of Eden. We'll get into this in a minute, but we receive the Holy Spirit because of Christ's death on the cross and we can be born again. That was the whole legal precedent. A new heart is a new will. There's no second will that you get when you're born again because you get new desires. You still have old ones that are conflicting, old desires. It's like memory, but it's not a second will. You don't have multiple personalities. And Christ was the model for this. His heart was perfect, so he didn't have two wills. He had one will. Just because we struggle with sins and old habits doesn't mean we have two wills. Look at Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. Now this is titled, The Law and Sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, do you think Paul here is talking about having two free wills? This is the same apostle that wrote about predestination, conforming to the image of Christ, election, foreknowledge, potters in clay, Do you think he's talking about having this libertarian free will and now God's will and he's having these two split personality things? No, not at all. He's talking about exactly what we just discussed, which is once you're born again and you have the spirit, you have in your inner being, he delights in the law of God in in his inner being. That's the new heart that he was given, the will of God coming through you. At the same time, you have a body that's been used to sin. It has memory of trauma and sin and temptation that keeps wanting to repeat old patterns. We have a brain, we have conditioning, we have hormones, we have all these things that have been misappropriated because we were born into the consequence of Adam's choices. And by the time you're born again, all those things are cemented in your body and you have to struggle against them as a new creation. That's why the new creation is fulfilled when we get a resurrected body. So, that's what he's talking about here. He's ta- he's reflecting on this experience of, I have a new will, but I have these desires that keep attacking me. It's not a separate will. They're just separate desires. You're not a split person personality disorder. It's one will, multiple desires. The other thing, too, is, you know... Choice is not contingent on options that you have. We tend to think about that in the United States as, you know, it's a buffet of choices. That's free free choice or freedom to choose. But you can choose something even though you don't have other options, right? Christ could still choose his situations, meaning to, to experience, I choose the situation. I'm in this situation. I choose to be part of it and to surrender to it even though he had no other choice, even though his life was predestined. We can experience choices. And that is, so we can be completely in alignment with that experience. Say, "I'm, I'm choosing this, I'm experiencing this. And that can be a choice. It doesn't have to be a choice free of influence to be a choice. Because first off, we can't make choices that are free of influence. So my conclusion is Christ had two natures. Two natures, but One will. And even if he had two wills, which he didn't, but even if he did, it doesn't prove that human will is free. If he had two wills, then here's the problem. Human will would want to escape crucifixion, but the divine will would want to crucify him. Right? So do you have this warring wills of throughout the entire time that he was alive where the divine will—he knew what he was gonna do right from the beginning, but then the human will is like, "No, I don't want to." And he's every every waking moment of Christ's life is a constant conflict. Does that sound like Christ? No. Christ is the source of peace. Why? Because His will, which is one, has subjugated the flesh, and may, and He's master over everything. Otherwise, if you have this libertarian free will and it's warring against the divine will and there's this there's this tension in the person of Christ, which is unfounded. Will is tied to person, it is not tied to nature. God was in Christ from birth, right? Christ is God, Luke 1, 34 through 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, pay attention to this really quick. This is what happened to Jesus. The Spirit was in him from conception. Okay. What Orthodox and Catholic, Eastern Orthodox and Catholics believe in with this whole infant baptism thing is that the Holy Spirit enters in you as soon as you're baptized as an infant. That's a heresy. That that makes absolutely no sense. And I'll give you simple proof. There are plenty of people who are baptized as infants that grow up to be adults and they're criminals. They don't care about Jesus. They die in their sins. They're not saved. It's never about the material things the Catholics and the Orthodox are basically doing what happened only to Jesus that you can, you know, you have the Holy spirit since you've been born. No, it's not the case. You have to have a change of mind and heart. And that change is brought about by God, not by us, but in Christ, the spirit was in him from the very beginning. Okay. So his flesh was not only, he wasn't, he immaculately conceived, right? He's conceived by the Holy spirit. He didn't have a fallen nature. He didn't have a sin nature cuz he's not guilty, he never sinned. He didn't have a desire to sin. He's a completely a blank slate. He's the, he's the genuinely the second Adam. But the the Adam that has the spirit from the beginning and the fullness of the spirit. He's the fulfillment of God's plan. Do you see how that works? And he's he's the template. He's he's the the demonstration that God was right. Christ proved that we are only free by surrendering to God. You know, Satan lied that we're free by rebelling, by being in the flesh. This is the lie from the Garden of Eden. Christ proves the freedom comes from only God giving you a new heart so that you can make different choices. Otherwise, you can't make different choices. We just make choices according to the flesh. Truly, our lives begin to change when we're born again. And I can attest to that. Amen. Amen. But our goodness and freedom is contingent upon our relationship with God. We are truly free when we're born again. We do not have free will, not in the libertarian sense. Christ had one will to show that God's plan, God was right. John 1 John 3 verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is from the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, The reason the Son of Man, the Son of God, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, there's a lot more in this verse that's so profound in relation to this topic. What were the original works of the devil? What brought all of this into existence? I mean, not reality, but what brought this fallen world upon us? What was the original works? Well, it was the Garden of Eden. That was the first thing that the devil did and it led to the fall and consequently you know everything else and evil and the cross really so it was it was for the good but either way the works of the devil were destroyed at the cross because the cross gave us gave god the legal precedent to give his spirit freely so that we could be free but the works of the devil started in garden of eden with the deception that you can be like god that you can choose what's good and evil that you're free to choose, that you won't die, immortal soul, all these things that are so popular today and I'll make other studies on, but that's what it was about. This whole Armenian free will thing, it's all about, you know, the, the self-Godhood, it ties into that. Every theology that's all about self-Godhood or enlightenment or these New Age theologies, Word of Faith theology, all of that is contingent on this lie that you can choose to change your reality predestination, election, reprobation, all these things we have ample upon ample biblical support are completely incompatible with those theologies. So you have to ask yourself, why is there a parallel between all those false theologies? What's the missing, what's the link, I should say? The link is this idea of libertarian free will. Well, Christ came to destroy that, to prove that obedience to God and surrender to God is how you actually obtain freedom. Because you don't have freedom in your flesh. Your flesh is fooling you. It's giving you the self-awareness that God created us with, is fooling us through this idea of free will. And, And it's been magnified through Satan's lie. The flesh is deceptive. Christ was submissive to the Father completely while he was incarnated. Even if he had two wills, it doesn't prove the man... He didn't, but I'm just saying, for the sake of argument, even if he had two wills, it doesn't prove that man can choose without influence, like God, which is what libertarian free will is. And and this whole idea that you can choose your way to faith and salvation and therefore choose your way out of it and lose your salvation is contingent upon you being able to make a choice free of influence. If somebody can prove to me that you can make choices free of influence... Free of the influence of your hormones, of your past, of your genetics, of the people around you, of the thoughts in your head, of whether you ate something that day or not, and a thousand other things. If you can prove to me that we can make choices free of influence, then I'll concede. But until then, it's a lie, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. We do not have free will. Freedom is found in Christ and in surrendering to his plan. That's what happens when you're born again. Not my will be done, but yours. That's the template. And I'll leave you with this. This is another mystery. But despite all this stuff, God still wants us to participate and actively engage this life and this reality. He's given us a sense of self. He gave Adam a name. He gave Eve a name. He gave them individuality. He wants us to be participants. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to the will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we'll get into this verse in the the challenge verses in a couple episodes when I I devoted strictly to objections. This is not saying you got to work for your salvation, but the point is, work out your salvation, meaning, here's your salvation, go for it, like, be a participant in this thing called life. 2 Timothy 4, 7-8 through 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we got to fight the good fight. We're going to get rewarded for our lives here. Revelations 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Go, be zealous. Don't just repent, but do it zealously. That reminds me of Luke 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive, make effort. So do these things mean that we have free will and that we have to work for our salvation, we can lose our salvation? No, they don't. Many people use these kind of verses to to twist Scripture and, and with this false theology that you can lose your salvation. You really have to read with discernment. It's God wants us to participate in life and to embrace this mystery of His Spirit in us and predestination and election and reprobation, which there's so much biblical precedent for, while at the same time we're living moment to moment, experiencing choices, life is a surprise, time is moving forward. How does that work? Who knows? But you know what? Even if you knew your future, you still would have to live it out moment by moment. And that's the beauty of it. We don't have the bird's eye view. We can transpose ourselves with our mind but we have to live in the present moment and thank God for that. So trust that the end is a good one. Trust that the one who's guiding everything's even the good and the bad. He's intelligent beyond understanding. He's morally perfect. And the end is better than we can ever imagine. So I hope this has been a blessing for you. I hope you've learned something. We'll see you next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about the parables of Jesus and how they clearly are a reflection of predestination, election, reprobation, all these things we talked about. They're so fascinating and they're great. I love parables. So we'll see you. Have a great weekend and God bless.